Good morning. My name is Mitchell Slater. I'm one of the elders here at River Oaks Community Church. If you're visiting with us, if you're joining us over the live stream, very glad uh, to be able to worship our Lord with you. Uh, And it's a privilege to get to bring the message from God's Word this morning. So let's go to Him for help as we start. Father, we need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe this message. Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. I pray that we would accept this as what it is. We would receive it as what it is, not as the word of man, but as the Word of God, which is at work among us. So Holy Spirit, please take your Word. Press it into our hearts, into our lives. Conform us into the image of Jesus. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Amen. The San Francisco Bay is an area known for earthquakes. Several fault lines run through this area. You have the the infamous San Andreas Fault. You have the lesser known but more dangerous Hayward Fault and others. Many people live their lives on top of these massive cracks in the earth's crust. Homes, businesses, churches, government buildings, they are built right along these fault lines. For the most part, they exist just fine, except when the seismic activity begins. Structures that seemed fine for years, that have been standing for decades, they can crumble in seconds. And in Acts chapter 6, the early church, they experience a, a tremor of relational conflict. And it's going to expose the fault lines that were hidden beneath the surface. So let's see what happened and how the church responded to it in Acts chapter 6. Verses 1 through 7. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Hear now the word of the one true and living God. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, help us. Open up your word to us now, we ask for the glory of your name. Amen. I want to summarize our passage like this. When the church is set in order, the gospel goes forth in power. When the church is set in order, 
the gospel goes forth in power. And we're going to walk through our passage in three stages. The problem, we'll see that in verse 1. In verses 2 through 6, we'll see the solution to the problem. And in the last verse, verse 7, we will see the result. So let's jump in to the problem. Let's read verse 1 again. Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. At this time of history in the early church, the church was growing and flourishing. Luke is telling us here that the disciples were increasing in number. Christianity really began as a grassroots movement, and as it grew and gained more and more followers, it also gained more and more problems. At the end of chapter 4, we saw that the disciples were selling their possessions. They were taking care of one another's needs. And in this passage, we get more details as to what that actually looked like, that there was apparently a daily distribution of food for the widows. We don't know exactly what that looked like, uh, but they were making sure that the widows uh, received daily meals. <laughs> a conflict arose among the Hellenists and the Hebrews that the Hellenists' widows were being neglected in the daily meals. Now, throughout the Bible, God has a consistent concern for the welfare of widows and orphans. True religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, James tells us. God calls himself the father to the fatherless and the defender of widows. This is, this is no small issue. But really what happened here is this complaint, it exposed a, a cultural fault line in the church. You see, these two groups were both Jewish. They were both born as Jews. And now that they had trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, they were also both Christians. The difference was cultural. The Hellenists, they had a Greco-Roman background. They, they spoke the Greek language. They were influenced by Greek thinkers. The Hebrews were those from a Judean culture, probably those who were born and raised in Jerusalem or the surrounding countryside. They spoke Aramaic. They had a, a Hebraic influence. This was a, a clash of cultures. So you could almost imagine the hushed conversations going on. The Hebrews might say, do you see those Hellenists? They're technically part of our people. But why do they care so much about Plato and Aristotle? They don't even speak our language. And then the Hellenists might say, do you see how those Hebrews look down at us? They think they're so much better than us because of their Jewish pedigree, their, their heritage in Jerusalem. But they'll never know that the sophistication that we know from the Greek world and now just because there's more of them, they think that they can skip over our widows. Do you see the problem? This grumbling and complaining, these murmurs and grievances, the fractures and divisions, this could have led to disaster for the early church. And it can lead to disaster today. See, the mystery of the gospel that we saw in our study of Ephesians, the unity of all peoples in Christ, what we already heard from Ephesians 2. 
that unity was under direct assault. The very oneness that Christ died to create in his people was under threat of unraveling. We, we just heard read that on the cross, Christ killed the hostility between us. And so often in our hearts and in our actions, we want to dig that hostility back up. This was a serious problem. And we have experienced similar problems in our day. Over the last year, God has shaken this world. And it has exposed the fault lines in our nation, in the church at large, and in this church. It has threatened the unity of Christ's body. Here are just a few of the, of the fault lines that I've seen exposed. Mask or no mask. Pro-Trump or never Trump. Vaccine or anti-vaccine. Public school or homeschool. Did I miss anyone? <laughs> the list can go on. Now while some of these issues may be important to discuss... We should never let them divide and destroy the unity that Christ prayed for in his people. Amen. That we would be perfectly one. How easy is it to inwardly grumble and complain? And to complain against others even in this church who don't share your every opinion and conviction. How easy is it to segment ourselves off and only spend time with believers who think exactly like we do? How often do we let those inward thoughts and complaints turn into actions? Do you ever find yourself intentionally avoiding another believer because of their different convictions? Are you like one of the Hebrews in this passage who would rather not spend time with those kooky Hellenists, those people who believe so differently than me, much less to serve them? Or are you like one of the Hellenists who feel looked down on by others, so maybe you feel justified in your complaints? Have you let cultural opinions and personal persuasions outweigh and undermine gospel convictions? If so, now is the time to remember what is of first importance. It's time to put Christ and to put Christ's people as a first priority. To die to self. These problems are not new. The early church experienced them. We have experienced them. The church throughout all of history has experienced them. In the mid-16th century, John Calvin was the pastor of the church in the city-state of Geneva. Intense persecution throughout Western Europe led many Christians to flee for their lives as refugees, and many of them fled to what was known as the City of Refuge, which was Calvin's Geneva. Over a 10-year period, the population of Geneva more than doubled because of this influx of refugees, and this led to some problems. One of the main complaints throughout these years was the the societal burden and the growing influence of these Protestant, primarily French, refugees. The wealthy Geneva natives and the poor foreign refugees experienced some relational friction. Does that sound familiar? Calvin, who was himself a refugee from France, he came up with a solution. He reorganized the diaconate or the, the ministry of deacons and set them to work. 
These deacons provided hospitality to strangers. They baked bread for the hungry. They provided medical care for the sick, gave vocational training to orphans, provided temporary assistance to the unemployed, and long-term assistance to widows. With this reorganization and structural change, with these men in place to serve, both the church and the city flourished. The church was set in order, and it was a blessing to everyone. Calvin's solution to Geneva's problem didn't originate with him. No doubt he had this text in mind as he worked on the problems of his day. Because we don't just see the problem here, we also see the apostles' solution to that problem. So let's read verses 2 through 6. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles, they didn't waste any time finding a solution to this problem. They didn't wait till the termites had destroyed the, the wood structure or the foundation, to borrow Art's illustration from last week. They called the church together to help find a solution. They worked to set the church in order. Jeremy Rennie, he has said that the church is an organized organism. I like that. It's a helpful description of God's people. We're not an organization like the Rotary Club or a softball team. We are an organism. The church is a living entity. It is the very body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. But the church is an organism that needs organization. It needs structure. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14 that everything should be done decently and in order. He told Titus that the reason he left him in Crete was that he could put what remained into order by appointing leadership in the churches. Colin Marshall and Tony Payne used the illustration of the trellis and the vine in their book by the same name. Jesus said he is the vine and we are the branches. Just like a, a grapevine is growing and alive on its own, but it needs a, a trellis. It needs that structure to help it flourish exponentially. That's exactly what we see happening in Acts 6. The disciples have been increasing, but to keep growing, they need structure. They need a trellis to keep them growing without hindrance. Now, this text is often thought of as the beginning of the diaconal ministry or the office of deacons. And depending on your background, you can have a lot of baggage that comes with the word deacons, whether you come from a Baptist background, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian. They're all very different views of deacons. But to, but to make things simple, biblical church government consists of elders and deacons. You could call them the shepherds and the servants. Elders, like the twelve here, they focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, 
While deacons, like the seven, they assist the elders by taking care of practical needs. Now, even if these men aren't exactly deacons in the technical sense, some people have said they, they served as proto-deacons or prototypes of what we would later know as deacons from other scriptures. We can see that this was an official process. The apostles needed some assistance. So they asked the church to select seven Christians from among their midst. Christians who met the qualifications of verse 3. More on that later. They presented these men to the apostles. The apostles commissioned them with prayer and the laying on of hands, and they started their duty. These seven men were appointed to serve tables to make sure that no one was overlooked. This structure would help eliminate the problem and make sure no one fell through the cracks like it had already been happening. It would also ensure that the 12 apostles could focus on their number one priority. See, the apostles are not saying that serving tables is beneath them, that they're too important to do such a menial task. It's not what they're saying at all. But the apostles, like all of us, only had so much time in the day. They had to focus on their number one priority. They had been commissioned by Christ himself to preach the word, to bear eyewitness testimony to his resurrection, to literally write the Bible. To neglect the ministry of widows was dangerous. But to neglect the ministry of the word was even more so. This shows us the centrality of the word in the life of the church. It is the word of God that creates the people of God, which is why we have such a focus on the word at this church. We value the preaching of scripture in the pulpit, the public reading of scripture in worship, the teaching of scripture in equipping classes, the application of scripture in growth groups, one-on-one discipleship with scripture, the training of our children in scripture, counseling in tough situations with scripture. There's power in the word. And at the same time, for that word to get out, we need people to take care of the practical needs, of the logistics, of the administration. Now, currently, we don't have deacons at River Oaks. Be praying for us as elders as we think through and pray through raising up deacons. But this passage isn't just meant to show us one group of people who do all the serving. No, these seven men were to be examples to that church, an example to us of humble service, of what it looks like to be a church set in order. For instance, we need the sound booth and the slideshow to be operated. We need men on the security team and greeters at the door. We need growth group leaders and Bible teachers. We need meals cooked and tables set up. We need help with the children's ministry, with the nursery. We need good conversations and good coffee in the hospitality room. Amen somebody on that last one. (laughs) The ministry of the word and prayer works best in cooperation with the serving of physical and practical needs. Last year, a lot of our normal ministries were put on halt because of COVID. But this year, Lord willing, we will be able to start up again and hit the ground running. But for us to be able to do that, we need all hands on deck. Just like an army needs soldiers on the front line, at the same time needs cooks in the mess hall, we need every member of this body working together in the ministry of the gospel. It's so encouraging how much we already see this happening in our body. At the same time, there's still a lot of work to do. 
For instance, let's just take Metri and the children's ministry back there. There are so many of you who volunteer your time and your effort to help train up our children in the Word of God and in the Gospel of Jesus. You middle schoolers and high schoolers who help out, you're such a blessing to this body. And we couldn't do it without you. But literally, we couldn't do it without you. We, we struggle to find volunteers sometimes. And by God's grace, we would love to plant a church, to plant multiple churches in this region and beyond. But we can't do that if we don't have men and women like these seven who are willing to set things in order to roll up their sleeves and get to work. One of these seven, Stephen, we'll see in the next chapter, he's a bold preacher. But he knew what needed to be done, and he did it. Do you view your relationship to this church as a passive spectator or as an active participant? Do you come here for what you can get out of it or for what you can give? Do you come to be served or to serve? Do you see yourself as a part of this community with a share in its common mission to make disciples? Do you feel like it's the role of the ministry professionals to do all the work. The early church didn't think so. They appointed these seven men out of the congregation. These were just regular, faithful Christians committed to serving the body. And remember, the Jerusalem church at this time had several thousand people. There's no way that these seven men could have done all the work. We don't know exactly how it worked, but most likely they were leading and overseeing this ministry of the tables, equipping others to help, building ministry teams the role of leadership in the church is to train the whole body to work together and fulfill our mission. We equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So if you're here and you don't have a place to serve, find one. If you don't know how, come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Chris, talk to Laura, talk to Metri. We would love to get you connected. Trust me, there's a place that could use you. It doesn't just apply to official church ministries either. This is just body life. This is just what it means to live together in our Christian community. Let me give you just two examples. Earlier in uh, 2020, the Martin, Lundqu the Martin Lundquist uh, growth group, they came up with a plan and they found all the people in the church who weren't able to come because of the pandemic and had been kind of disconnected somewhat. And they called and connected with all of them. And they got to go and visit with them at their homes. They got to go bring them a meal. They got to go just encourage them. What an amazing way to serve. They just saw a need, and they went and, and met that need. They, they fulfilled their ministry. Another example, this, this morning I was getting my microphone on before uh, first service. And I felt something at my leg and I looked down and Ben Batchelor is, is knelt down. He's tying my shoe. <laughs> this missionary, this man who is completely sold out for bringing the word of God and the gospel of Jesus to the nations, he's at church and he's trying to find ways to serve. And he sees my shoelace untied and he stoops down and helps me. That's amazing. 
That's what life in the body should look like. Praise God that we've had many people visiting with us lately. If you're here, we would love that you're here. And as the Lord blesses our church, we need to make sure that no one slips through the cracks like these Hellenist widows did. In Christ's kingdom, we each have a job to do. Just as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But we can't just focus on ministry and not talk about integrity, on what we do without who we are. We don't want to talk about the structure of the church without talking about our own souls. Which is why verse 3 is so important. Let's read it again. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. The church was to select these seven men based on these three qualities. They were to examine them and, and test them where they have good repute, filled with the Spirit and filled with wisdom. Good repute, so literally to have a good reputation, to use church terms, to have a good testimony, a life that witnesses could look at and say that evidence is Christian maturity. Not a perfection of life, but a pattern, a consistent pattern of faithfulness to Christ in their lives. They were to be full of the Spirit, just as we can be filled with anger, filled with joy, overcome. They are to be filled with the Spirit. He is to be the comprehensive influence of their lives, yielding His fruit more and more. They are to be wise. I love that we're reading through Proverbs. We need to get wisdom. The situation with the widows was difficult. In some ways, it was a relational minefield. These men would need great wisdom to navigate that in a loving way. God-honoring way. A wise, spirit-filled life of good repute. Would that describe you? Would you have been chosen as one of these seven? Which one of these areas do you need to grow in? Which one of them can you rejoice in because you've seen the Spirit bring growth in that area? If you're like me and you need things kind of dumbed down and made simple, there's three things that by the, the Spirit's power you can work on this week. Being of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. But don't just think about this in your own life. The apostles, they weren't calling for personal introspection, but on encouraging the work of God in the lives of other Christians. They were to look around in the church and find others who were exemplifying these qualities. So look around. Find people in this church to encourage. Be quick to praise what God is doing in their life. Find these types of men and women and follow their example. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. When we pursue godliness in our personal lives and simultaneously we pursue humble service in the church, God delights to use that in extraordinary ways. Which brings us to our last point. 
Because so far we've looked at the problem and the solution to the problem. So now let's look at the result in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In Calvin's Geneva, after he had set the church in order, he had set these deacons to work, he had taken care of the refugees, something amazing happened. These displaced men, they sat under Calvin's preaching, oftentimes five times a week. He trained them, he equipped them, he prepared them, and they started having a burden to go back home and to bring this full order of gospel with them. By 1555, Calvin and his Geneva supporters had planted five churches in France. Four years later, they had planted 100 churches. By 1562, with the help of some of their sister cities, they had planted more than 2,000 churches in France, Italy, Poland, Hungary, the Netherlands, and beyond. They even sent missionaries to Brazil. A refugee missionary movement had taken off. And it filled Europe with the light of the gospel. The organization and the service of the church led to literally thousands of churches being planted. But think of those regular members of the church. Those men and women who were serving. They were doing seemingly mundane tasks. Baking bread. Bandaging wounds. Teaching trade skills. Changing diapers. But all of that work paved the way for the kingdom to advance in mighty ways. When you are in the kingdom of the foot-washing king, there is no such thing as a mundane task. When Jesus, the one to whom all creation bows down in worship, when that Jesus stoops down to wash the filth and the muck off of his disciples' feet, it shows us there is no such thing as a mundane task. Let's read verse 7 again. I just love this verse so much. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I love that verse. So encouraging. The growth that was happening in verse 1, the growth that was threatened by the problem with the widows, that growth is now back in full swing. And Luke doesn't just say now that the disciples were increasing, but that the word of God was increasing. With these seven men in place to help, the twelve apostles can now focus on the ministry of the word, and the Spirit blessed that ministry in amazing ways. How encouraging is it to know that what you can do, what you can give, how you can serve, no matter what it is, how encouraging is it to know that our collective efforts to spread this gospel will succeed in our city and in our nation and in our world? Do you realize the power of the word of God? Do you realize that the gospel that we preach can and will bring salvation to the world? Do you realize that this book will conquer the nations? And everything that we do, even to the smallest act of service, is a part of getting this word out to the world. 
The seemingly mundane tasks that God has given us to do are effective for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's amazing. Be encouraged that your simple acts of faith and love can leave a legacy that lasts for centuries. And more than that, for eternity. Christ wants his household to be set in order. He wants his family of faith to be a healthy, functional family. And when it is, he delights to save and to adopt and to bring more and more redeemed rebels into his blood-bought family. Hopefully, you're starting to get the main point. When the church is set in order, the gospel goes forth in power. In this case... The gospel went forth in such power that even the priests, the least likely candidates for salvation, the priests, those who had a hand in crucifying Jesus, the priests who were so opposed and were just beating the apostles, even these priests, many of them, became obedient to the faith. We're not sure exactly what happened with these priests, but there was something compelling about this community We want to be a community that compels the world to come to Christ, not that repels them. Some of the most repelling qualities are infighting and division. But when the church focuses on both ministering the word and meeting practical needs, when we are united in truth and love, the church becomes a compelling community to the world, even to the most staunch opponents to the faith. How amazing would it be to see the leaders of progressive and secular culture, the leaders of apostate and liberal churches, the ones who are most hostile to the Christian faith, how amazing would it be to see them obey the gospel call to repent and trust in Christ Jesus? It can be done because Christ is mighty to save And I would have failed you this morning if I would preach on the church's order and not on the church's Savior. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the second person of the Trinity, the image of the invisible God, the Word of God incarnate. He is the ultimate servant. He is the one who humbled himself and took the form of a servant. He's the master who washed his disciples' feet. He's the king who laid down his life for his enemies. He came to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So if you don't know him this morning, if you don't know Christ, I want to talk to you. I want you to think through those three qualities we already talked about. Good repute. What would the closest people in your lives say are your reputation? Are you known as someone who is arrogant or selfish or lazy or hot-headed or cynical or divisive? Maybe... On the outside, your reputation is squeaky clean. 
but you know that on the inside it's a mess. That you portray a good public image, but your, your private life is in shambles. If that's the case, you need a change. You need not just a, a, a outward change of behavior. You need an inward change of your nature. This is what the Bible calls the new birth. Becoming a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that only comes through the next point, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot change yourself. You can't clean yourself up. Only the Holy Spirit can give you a new heart that loves and follows Christ. Only He can give you the faith to trust in Christ. And that comes through wisdom. The most wise thing that you could do is to put your faith in Jesus. The most foolish thing is to reject Him. To reject the one who died for you and who rose for you and who freely offers you eternal life and to reject that and go to hell is the most foolish thing you could do. Be wise. Come to Christ. He is humble and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For those of you who do know Him, I want you... I want to leave you with this exhortation. Look to Christ. Love the brethren. And let's get to work. For the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Please use it to grow each person here and to grow this church and to advance your gospel. Holy Spirit, please teach us, correct us, reprove us, train us in righteousness from this passage. Help us, even in our day, to see the word of God continue to increase and the number of disciples multiply greatly. I pray for those in whose hearts you might be stirring now who don't know you. I pray that you would bring them to salvation in Christ Jesus. And I pray that you would lead us now in worship to your great name. So we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.